tonight we start our study of the book of Revelation. But before we go into the actual first chapter of it, which will be in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an overview of eschatology and specifically of the millennium, since that is the best way to deal with the issues related to the future and the last days. We'll talk about the millennium. But before we get into that topic, why do we why do we study eschatology? Why is eschatology or the study of the last things, the end times, important for the Christian to know? Is it a matter of dates and persons and personalities and escaping punishment or escaping affliction and things of that nature? Are we to be focused on that and preoccupied with that? Or is there another reason that the Bible expects us to know about the return of Christ and the events surrounding the return of Christ? Well, there is. As we prayed about hope and comfort and endurance, that's the very fundamental reason why we study eschatology. A couple of examples of this. Firstly, in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. He tells us the reason for our hope, what we are looking for. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We'll read verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We've been blessed to be born again, verse 3. And we have now, since we are born again, a living hope. Hope is future-oriented. It's looking ahead to the things to come. And this is possible because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Because I live, you shall live also, Jesus said, John 14, 19. So there is a day of resurrection for us. As well, in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, it's, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead as proof that there is a day of judgment to come. So the whole world needs to be ready for that day of judgment. And this is why the resurrection is important and why Peter mentions it in verse 3. The outcome, what will we obtain? It says in verse 4, an inheritance. An inheritance, not an earthly inheritance, which, are, which is perishable and which can be defiled, which can fade away, but this is one that's reserved in heaven. We look forward, our hope is in heaven. Our goal is in heaven. Meantime, verse 5, we are protected by the power of God. We have God's powerful protection overseeing us through faith. It is our faith that overcomes the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Our faith overcomes the world, but that faith is a faith that is generated by God, gifted by God to us, and preserved by God in us until the very end. And this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's ready to be, be, to be revealed. It's at hand. It will happen. It will be manifested, revealed in due time, in the last time. But right now, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice because we don't see it yet. We don't actually experience it yet. But in the meantime, we, we greatly rejoice in what lies ahead for us. And for now, a little while, we are distressed by various trials. At the moment, now, until we see Christ face to face, we are distressed by various trials, which is necessary, verse 7, 
because the proof of our faith needs to be manifested. Just as gold and silver have elements, have alloys, have dross that need to be burned up and set aside so that we have pure gold. The purer the gold, the better the gold. The more valuable the gold, that's the same with our faith. And this has to be tested by fire. Tested by fire is another way of describing various trials, distresses, afflictions. But all of this will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. When He is revealed, when He is manifested, when He returns visibly for His church, for His people, all of these other things will be done away with, and Jesus will say to us, Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. He will say those words to us. And meantime, though we don't see him, we love him, and we believe in him, and we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, because we know, verse 9, the outcome of all that we experience, all of our endurance, all of our trials and afflictions, is the salvation of our souls. God has our souls in hand right now, and he'll protect us until the very end, until we see Jesus face to face. This is why we study future things. This is why we just, uh, study last things, eschatology. This is the reason. Now, in the book of Revelation, it also tells us the same thing. Throughout the book, we'll look at excerpts from various passages why we study eschatology. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This, is, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, just as Peter spoke of it here in John, or in Revelation 1.1, John the Apostle speaks of the revelation of Jesus Christ. What all we need is to know Christ. Christ in His coming, His first coming, and Christ in His second coming. All that we need surrounds Christ. Even Jesus said that in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All that we need for our faith is to know Christ. And we grow in that knowledge from the time of our conversion until the time of the consummation of our faith. That is when we see him face to face. John the Apostle is given these truths in this book which we call the book of Revelation, or the Revelation to John, or the Apocalypse, and other terms like that. We use those words to describe the contents of this book. And what's the benefit? Verse 3. Since we're looking forward to this thing, that, this return that will happen in a short time, the time is near. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. We are blessed if we understand the contents of future things so that we hear them, we heed them, that is, we obey them. We act in accordance with the truths that God reveals. Only then are we blessed. We're not blessed if we just hear and then walk away and forget about what we just heard. We're blessed when we hear, we understand, and we heed. We obey it. We're faithful to the contents of those truths. Then it will bless us because it will bless us since it contains the need for hope, comfort, and endurance. These are the truths and the virtues that we need in us, hope, comfort, and endurance. Example, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, 9 describes the martyrs. Revelation 6, 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. There are souls that were beheaded, and they were beheaded because of the word of God that, and the testimony that they maintained. That means that they endured. They did not give up the faith. They did not fall away from the faith. They did not deny Christ. They confessed Christ in the face of even fatal consequences. They endured until the end. And in heaven, verse 10, they cry out to God, How long, O Lord, holy and true? God is holy and God is true, so His holiness and His truth must be vindicated, must be demonstrated, must exercise itself upon those who reject His holiness and reject His truth. And who are they? They are the ones who beheaded, who persecuted the church. Because God will judge and avenge the blood of His people upon those who dwell on the earth. The wicked people who deserve God's wrath and punishment will be punished. And verse 11 says that they're supposed to rest, they're supposed to wait until the full number of the brothers in Christ are persecuted, tortured, put to death, and then when the full number ha have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintain, then God brings about the end. When the full number of those God intends to be persecuted this way, then the end will come. That's what we look forward to. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 17. Chapter 12 and verse 17. The last verse. And the dragon was enraged and the woman, uh, with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There is this affliction that the dragon perpetrates against the woman and all who are her offspring, all associated with her, all the offspring of the, the woman, because they keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is what's characteristic of the people of God. They obey God and maintain their witness, their testimony of Jesus Christ. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, Revelation 14. Chapter 14, and it says in verse 12, 14, 12, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the perseverance. This is what the perseverance entails. Keeping the commandments of God and holding their faith in Jesus. Enduring until the end. Not letting any affliction, even from our persecutors to overcome our faith. Then chapter, chapter 18 and verse 20. Chapter 18 and verse 20. After God has judged the people of the earth and Babylon the great, chapter 18 verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you, against her. The time to rejoice in God's justice has come for all the saints, apostles and prophets and those in heaven to rejoice together because God's judgment has finally arrived. He has vindicated his people and he has punished his enemies, the wicked of the earth. And who will do that? Revelation 19 says who it will be that will carry out this judgment. Revelation 19.11 It is Christ Himself. 19.11 And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ himself, the Savior, is here now the judge of all the earth. He is the one who executes the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He will do so on our behalf. Then what will the final outcome be? Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. When the new heavens and the new earth are created, God receives the people as a bride adorned for her husband. And God's dwelling is among his people, verse 3 says. God himself will be with his people. What Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, is restored in the new heavens and the new earth. They lost it in Genesis 3 because of sin, but now sin is no more. It's, it's gone, and there's no more death as a consequence for sin. The punishment for sin is death, and all of that is removed because verse 4 he wipes away every tear. There's no longer any death, no mourning, no crying, nor pain. The first things have passed away. There's no more of any of those things. God makes all things new, verse 5. And verse, verses 6 and 7, the ones who drink from the spring of the water of life without cost, these are the ones who overcome and they inherit all these things and they are called God's son. We belong to God as our God, and we are called the sons of God. We enjoy this inheritance, this eternal inheritance, but not for all who practice sin. Verse 8, those who practice sin, their destiny is the lake that burns with fire and brimstone the second death. There is a clear demarcation, a distinction that God makes between the righteous who are redeemed in Christ and the wicked who are lost and gone forever and ever in the lake of fire. So that's what our hope is. Our hope is that we'll see Christ, we'll be with Christ forever. There will no longer be any sin or death or any pain, no more sorrow. And God will vindicate us and he'll punish our enemies. And this will be the eternal state. Forever we'll enjoy the presence of God while the unbelievers experience his wrath. Okay, now, when we study eschatology, eschatology is literally the study of last things or end times. Last things or end times. The things that have yet to occur is what we study for the purpose of our hope, comfort, and endurance. In Orthodox and historic Christianity, that entails belief in the physical, bodily, visible return of Christ. He rose from the dead in his resurrection body. So we believe in that. The historic faith has always believed that Jesus comes again. His second coming will occur. 
That is part and parcel of that. We must believe in that. When he comes, visibly, he will raise the dead, the righteous to eternal life, and the wicked to eternal condemnation or eternal judgment. There are two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Jesus will judge the whole world. He'll judge the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then their eternal destinies are sentenced at that time. One will go to heaven and be with the Lord, and the other to hell and be with the devil and his angels forever. The two groups are distinct groups. This is what will happen. All orthodox, historic, biblical Christians in the past have believed this, that these sets of doctrines that I just explained. However, there are differences of opinion on other matters related to the future. Those matters can be categorized in terms of the millennium. The millennium, and that is what you have before you on the papers that I gave you. The millennium, there are different views of the millennium. I will explain these different views and then we'll have a time of discussion of them. The various views of the millennium. You'll see the first view, there's four views, and the first view is listed there as post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. It is also known as optimistic post-millennialism or optimistic amillennialism. I like to refer to it as this, optimistic amillennialism. And I will explain these terms and we'll go through this as we read this paragraph. You can see the timeline of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism goes from the first coming of Christ to the day of Pentecost when the outpouring of the Spirit occurred and the beginning of this great movement of the church started on the day of Pentecost and the gospel was propelled in, in great force throughout the, the earth because there were many Jews and proselytes or God-fearers, those who converted to Judaism from Gentile backgrounds, they were there on the day of Pentecost, received the Spirit in that miraculous way, and they went back to their native countries. So that's post-millennialism says that the gospel was propelled at that time. And then the last days, the last days are those days between that event and A.D. 70. Jesus died and rose again and ascended in A.D. 30. Then there was a period of about 40 years. And that period is known, according to them, as the last days. And in A.D. 70, certain significant events occurred. And then from that time, and as we speak right now, there is, according to their belief, an optimistic and figurative millennium. An optimistic. Things are improving. Things are becoming better. And the millennium is not a literal fixed time in history or a fixed thousand years. The word millennium means thousand years. They say it's not a literal thousand years. It's an unknown, undisclosed period of time that God has not revealed to us when the gospel is uh, being proclaimed throughout the world. And as it is propagated, more and more people come to Christ. More and more Christians are influencing society and all areas of society. So it's called optimistic in the sense that it is improving the situation of the earth. The world is becoming a better and better place to live. There's less and less evil, more and more good, more and more of the kingdom of God that reigns on the earth. At the end of that time, when there has been near improvement or complete improvement on the earth, then Jesus returns, the second coming, as you see in that timeline. That's why it's known as post-millennialism. The term post means after the millennium. After this optimistic and figurative millennium, Jesus returns, and then the day of judgment occurs, and then there's eternity. Now let's look at the paragraph for more specific definitions of what I just said. 
Postmillennialism refers to the belief that Jesus returns after the millennium. Postmillennialism after the millennium. We may call this view optimistic or positive amillennialism. It's optimistic or positive in that the world improves. Proponents believe the world becomes better and finally Christian. The kingdom of God permeates all areas of society, whether politics, economics, entertainment, arts, whatever areas of society there are, the Christian influence dominates and permeates all of it, and then Jesus returns. And then Jesus returns to receive this blessed kingdom that has been brought about through the work of the church throughout history. It is amillennial. Notice, I called it amillennial in this sense, in that there is no literal millennium. There is no literal 1,000 years of some physical kingdom of Christ on the earth. They don't believe in that. They say there's no literal millennium, only figurative or symbolic. It's only figurative or symbolic. It's an undisclosed, unknown period of time when the church improves the condition of the earth. There's less evil and more good, and finally the earth becomes mostly or completely Christian, and then Jesus returns. The millennium is for the church to enjoy and to bring about through the gospel and dominance in all areas of society. The Great Tribulation occurred in the years preceding A.D. 70. They say that this term Great Tribulation is found in Matthew chapter 24. 24 uh, verses 21, 22, 23 in that section. The Great Tribulation Jesus spoke of and they say that it occurred in the years preceding A.D. 70 when the Roman Emperor Nero persecuted the church the next emperor, Titus, not the biblical book of Titus, just to avoid confusion, the Roman emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and also scattered the Jews. This he did finally in A.D. 70. That is a critical, crucial time in the history of the Bible. In A.D. 70, he destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and scattered the Jews Few of them remained in Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout uh, Canaan, also called Palestine, unfortunately, but called in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel, Judea and Samaria, and then other parts of the world, the Jews were scattered because of this persecution and destruction perpetrated by Emperor Titus. They say that was the last days, the Great Tribulation. They also say that Nero and or Titus was the Antichrist. The Antichrist was the Roman Emperor Nero and or Titus. A few of their key texts are found in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, Matthew 13, 31 to 33, and Matthew 24, 14. Let's look, for example, at Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 31. Matthew 13, 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke, Another parable to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Here, proponents of postmillennialism say that the mustard seed starts out small, which would be like the early disciples and the day of Pentecost, but then the gospel spreads and goes throughout the whole earth so that the birds of the air which represents all the rest of the earth 
and the people of the earth, they come and take refuge in the branches of the mustard seed tree. Now, a huge tree compared to the size of the mustard seed. And then verse 33, post-millennialists say that just a little leaven in the lump of dough, in here three pecks of meal, not very much, and then this little leaven, which represents the kingdom of heaven, it spreads throughout the, the dough and permeates the whole dough. They say the little bit is the gospel, the little gospel presence, and then it permeates the rest of the dough, which, which represents the nations of the world, the rest of the world. Well, my brief rebuttal to this, my brief rebuttal to these verses, this is... A, this is not my view. Yes, this is not my view. View, My brief rebuttal to this, certainly the kingdom of God does spread. The gospel does spread from being mostly confined to the Jewish people to spreading to the various nations of the world. And that's the sense in which Jesus meant this. But this does not imply that the church, which has a remnant in many nations of the world, a small percentage of believers in many nations of the world, it doesn't necessitate, these verses do not necessitate that the believers end up dominating all of the governments of the world, dominating all of the media of the world, dominating all the economics and business of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And conquering all the false religions of the world. It doesn't mean that necessarily. It just means that the gospel spreads. That's the basic point. It spreads from being small, to having people as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore, or a great multitude in heaven which no one could count, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 7-9. That's what Jesus meant by these verses. Then, the next view. The next view on the page is known as amillennialism. Amillennialism, also known as, as I would propose, Pessimistic amillennialism. Not pessimistic in terms of a person who's a grouch and a gripe. Not in that sense, but in the sense that the world is worsening. The world is an evil place, and far greater evils will indeed occur until Christ returns. So the world is not improving, it is regressing. It's, it's becoming worse and worse. So this view, which is the simplest of all the views... It says that the first coming of Christ, be, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, is this pessimistic and figurative millennium. It's a figurative millennium. It's not a literal 1,000-year period. It is an unknown, undetermined, unrevealed. Not the, the Bible doesn't tell us, they say, that the, the millennium is actually 1,000 years or 2,000 years or 5,000 years or 200 years. It doesn't say. We don't know. It's just figurative. And during this period, between the first coming and second coming of Christ, the world worsens. There is great turmoil. The church is persecuted until Christ returns to deliver his people. And then the resurrection occurs, the day of judgment occurs, and then there's eternity. Between the first and second comings of Christ, the world worsens and Christ delivers his people. Now let's look at the paragraph and the description more specifically. Amillennialism refers to the belief that Jesus returns after the millennium. Don't let that confuse you. The first view also believes after the millennium Jesus returns. This second view Amillennialism also teaches that Jesus returns after the millennium, but it has been dubbed Amillennialism because the A of A is a negative, meaning no or not. There is, what they mean is that there's no literal millennium. No literal millennium. We may call this view pessimistic or negative Amillennialism because things are not becoming more and more positive and good and better the kingdom of God is not conquering every aspect of society. The gospel is spreading, they agree, but it's not conquering every nation and every tribe and every family, literally every nuclear family of every nation. It's not doing that. Therefore, it's more pessimistic or negative in its view. 
Uh, proponents believe the world becomes more and more evil, and then Jesus returns to deliver the church and punish the wicked world. It is amillennial in that there is no literal millennium, only figurative or symbolic. The prefix a or a means no or not, so that there is no literal millennium of 1,000 years. Rather, it is an indefinite time between the first and second comings of Christ called the last days. The last days is a designation, the last days or the last hour, various other terms the Bible uses to describe the period between the first and the second comings of Christ. So they believe that we are in the last days. Uh, Paradisiacal texts such as Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, and Isaiah 65, 17-25, refer to the eternal state on earth rather than a limited time for the millennium on earth. Other proponents of the millennium believe that there is a literal millennium on the earth, but the amillennial view says that whenever we have paradisiacal texts, texts that describe a utopia where there's no more sin and death, when, when it describes that, such as Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, they're not describing a literal millennium, they say. It's describing the eternal state in symbolic and figurative terms. Okay? Then, they say the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist designate many incidents, groups, and people throughout history. They say the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist designate many incidents, groups, and people throughout history. The most common designation of the Antichrist is the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope himself as the Antichrist. That has been a very common... This view has been one of the most common views throughout church history. Not necessarily in certain Protestant circles such as Baptist and Pentecostal circles it has not been but in other circles such as Lutheran circles and in Presbyterian circles and Reformed Baptist circles this amillennial view has been more common then a few of their key texts are Revelation 20 1 to 6 Acts 2 14 to 21 1 Corinthians 10 11 and 2 Thessalonians 1 to two. Now, I agree with some of, uh, most of these texts that they presented because they do describe events that I myself believe, which will be mentioned in the next view. But one text that I think that they misunderstand is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, especially the first couple of verses of Revelation chapter 20. Let's turn to that. And I will also give a brief rebuttal for it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, I said that in amillennialism, they believe that 
the millennium occurs between the first and the second comings of Christ. Well, they take verses 1 to 2, the binding of Satan to be that Satan was bound on the cross. Satan was bound on the cross so that, verse 3, he should not deceive the nations any longer. He's not deceiving the nations any longer. That's what they say. And then they say that he'll be released for a short time, and then that eventually that the dead uh, will come to life. Uh, the rest of the dead, or, or the first resurrection, comes in verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They say the first resurrection is a regeneration or a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. And then verse 5, they say the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Not until later does the, the real or second resurrection take place. Well, what are the problems with this? For one, when it says that, or when they say that Satan was bound on the cross, I don't see any implication of the cross right here in these verses. I don't see the word cross. I don't see the death of Christ. I don't see atonement or any kind of language like that here in the first couple of verses. So where they get that from, they have to assume that and then associate the binding of Satan to that when it's not necessarily here. The other part, or other problem is Satan is actually deceiving the nations. He continues to do so, and he's doing so at great lengths. He has many nations under control, and though the gospel has spread, it has not dominated many nations. It is very small in many, many nations. And then the problem in verse 3 is he's released for a short time. What would that mean, he's released for a short time? If he's bound and he's thrown into the abyss, if he's thrown into the abyss, why is he taken out of the abyss and then released for a short time? What would that mean? What could that mean? Because the, the one who is thrown into the abyss is usually the one who is punished, and he stays there, usually. So these are a few problems that I have with this view in Revelation chapter 20. Now let's go to the next view. The next view is known as post-tribulational premillennialism. Post-tribulational premillennialism. It's also known as historic premillennialism. Historic in that throughout the history of the church, especially in the second century of the church, in the period between AD 100 and 200, from that period onward, there was a, a presence for, of this view throughout the history of the church. And that's why it's known as historic premillennialism. It's also known as classic because it's got a classical or historical presence in the church. There have been proponents of it throughout history. Now, what does it believe? It believes in the first coming of Christ. And then between the first coming and the second comings of Christ, we are living in the last days. The last days exist until the return of Christ. And then we come to the second coming of Christ and then we have the figurative duration or literal millennium. Proponents of this view do not agree. Some say that there is a figurative millennium, a, a, a time of prosperity and the rule of Christ on the earth, physical, literal rule of Christ on the earth, but the duration is unknown. So it's a figurative duration or an unknown duration on the earth. And then a few proponents of this view believe that there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. So either a shorter duration of Christ's rule on the earth or a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And then there's eternity. Then eternity. Now the paragraph that describes it. 
Post-tribulational premillennialism refers to the belief that Jesus returns before the millennium. Now, this third view teaches that Jesus returns before the millennium. That's why it's known as pre. The prefix pre indicates his return before the millennium. These proponents believe the world becomes more and more evil, and then Jesus returns to deliver the church and punish the wicked world. He delivers the church and punishes the wicked world. In this way, this view is similar to the previous view, the amillennial view. The world worsens, it's more and more evil, and the only one to deliver us is Jesus, who delivers the church and then punishes the wicked world. The interval between the first and second comings of Christ is called the last days. This too, it's just like the previous view. The last days are right now between the first and the second comings. Some believe the millennium is literally for 1,000 years, while others believe it is of an uncertain duration. The millennium is for the church, comprised of Jews and Gentiles, saved by the gospel of Christ. The millennium, the literal, physical, visible millennium with Christ on the earth, entails Jews and Gentiles enjoying Christ together. The Great Tribulation and the Antichrist designate many incidents, groups, and people throughout history, but especially prior to the return of Christ. There is an intensification of persecution and tribulation right before the return of Christ. A few of their key texts are Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 40 to 48, Revelation 20, 1 to 10, Acts 2, 14 to 21, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, and Hebrews 1, verse 2. Hebrews 1, verse 2 would also be for the amillennial view because it says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. God spoke to us in the Son in the last days, which means that Jesus' first coming and, and until the second coming are designated as the last days. Now, the proponents of the pre post-tribulational premillennial view cite Revelation 20, for example, because in that passage, John, the apostle, mentions 1,000 years six times. Why does he mention it six times in Revelation 21 to 10 if he intended to take it figuratively? He seems to be emphasizing the point. So if we emphasize a point, not necessarily absolutely, but likely, you, sh you would think he's trying to make the point that it's a thousand years. We're talking about something that's about to, uh, that is going to occur or about to occur on the earth. Another is in Zechariah 14, there is a great war that occurs and then the Lord returns to deliver his people from that great war and then they celebrate the Feast of Booths. They celebrate one of the festivals of the Old Testament. The people of God with the Messiah, with Christ on the earth, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now one could take that figuratively but it seems to be a straightforward and literal passage and that's why proponents of this view say it seems to describe something that's actually occurring on the earth. Now, critics of this view and the next view say that certain passages of the Bible do not allow for a resurrection to take place before the millennium, the resurrection of the righteous, the church, and then another one at the end of the millennium, the resurrection of the wicked. In other words, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, according to the critics of this view, they say that it has to be at the same time. It has to be at the same time, not separated by any number of years. It has to be at the same time. And one verse that they use to describe that is John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John 5, 28. John 5, 28. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. An hour is coming, or a time is coming, a day is coming, when all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. By all he means every individual who's ever lived. We know that because, verse 29, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those would be the sheep, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, those would be the goats, the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the wicked. The proponents of the amillennial view, for example, will say, this passage says they all come out of the dead at one time, The passage does not say or imply that there is a space of time between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Well, my brief rebuttal to that is, yes, it does say an hour is coming, and yes, all are going to rise from the dead, but the term hour in the Bible does not necessarily mean at one moment or on one day. The term hour can mean a period of time. And it depends on the context how long we're talking about a period of time. Sometimes it could mean immediately, such as when Jesus healed certain individuals, and it says, and immediately he was healed that hour. Well, it doesn't mean that immediately, uh, 50 minutes later or 45 minutes later, within an hour, the person was healed, but it means at that time, instantly. And at other times, hour could mean a long period of time. For example, 1 John 2, 19 says, Children, little children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know that it is the last hour. So by John saying last hour, he didn't mean one hour or one moment. He meant a period of time in 1 John 2, 18. In that way, we could also understand John 5, 28 to 29. Okay, now the last view, the fourth view, is the most popular view, I'm sure, that you have heard of. And this is known as pre-tribulational premillennialism. Pre-tribulational premillennialism, also known as dispensationalism, also known as dispensational premillennialism dispensational premillennialism so what do they hold the first coming of Christ after that was the day of Pentecost when the day of Pentecost occurred the Holy Spirit was given to the church and then we now live in the church age the church age comprises the period between the day of Pentecost Acts chapter 2 to the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. So that's the period of the church age, or as they say, the age of grace. The age of grace. Grace was not experienced and known before Pentecost and rapture. The age of grace was not known before, or no grace was known before, in this way and there is no grace after so it is this period that's the age of grace now you might have some detractors who say well grace did exist but not not exactly in the same way as this period so they still dispensationalists still make a distinction and they call this the age of grace the Holy Spirit is available and indwells believers now but he does not later only in this period between Pentecost and Rapture. Then there is the Tribulation, which is the Great Tribulation, a period of seven years. When the Rapture occurs, the Church is taken out of the way and the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth. Then the period of Tribulation is seven years long. There's a period three and a half years. The first three and a half years is a period when there are events in the world happening and the Antichrist is building up his momentum, and then he perpetrates persecution against the people of Israel 
in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And then Jesus returns. So the official return of Christ is the second coming. And then there is a resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. And after that, Israel's literal millennium. According to the pre-tribulational, premillennial, or dispensational view, there is a literal millennium of a thousand years, and Israel, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, this millennium is for their benefit. It's for them. And after the millennium, a resurrection of the wicked, and then eternity. Resurrection of the wicked, and then eternity. Now, in the paragraph... Pre-tribulational premillennialism refers to the belief that Jesus returns before the Great Tribulation. He returns before the Great Tribulation, lasting seven years, and before the millennium, lasting a literal 1,000 years. This is why it's known as pre-tribulational, because he returns before the tribulation and premillennial before the millennium. The church escapes the great tribulation because it, the tribulation, is meant for the nation Israel to suffer. It's for the Jews or the nation Israel for them to suffer in it, not the church. This escape is known as the rapture. The rapture, taken from the Latin word for caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It should say 4.17, chapter 4, verse 17. The church meets the Lord in the air in this rapture. The church meets the Lord in the air. That is, the Lord does not place His feet on the earth. The church is judged by Christ for seven years in heaven. It's, they say it's necessary for there to be the judgment of the believers during the period of the tribulation, and this occurs in heaven. And the church observes the afflictions of Israel on the earth. The Holy Spirit leaves the earth when the church leaves. The Holy Spirit leaves when the church leaves. During the tribulation, Israel is saved by a different gospel as found in Revelation 14, 6-7. The second coming of Christ with the church occurs at the end of the tribulation. We, the church, they say, will return with Christ at the re second coming of Christ, and this occurs at the end of the great tribulation. After that, the literal millennium is intended for Israel to enjoy. Revelation chapters 4 to 22 are taken literally, and the news is watched closely to determine the identity of the Antichrist. They take Revelation and other parts also of Scripture literally in order to understand what the Bible means and how to interpret the current events with what's in the Bible. We need to know, they say, who the Antichrist is and what all of his machinations are in order to set up his own domain throughout the whole, the whole earth. And then we will know, when he begins to do so, the imminent return of Christ. They say Christ can return at any moment, at any given time. He can return like a thief in the night. And everybody will be surprised. Everybody will be surprised that suddenly many, many people who were going about their daily tasks suddenly disappear because everybody is taken by surprise. It's taken, it, it happens suddenly and the people are taken by surprise because it's supposed to happen right before Antichrist begins to amass his persecution against the people of Israel in the Great Tribulation. Now, why, what, what, what uh, a couple of brief rebuttals on why I don't believe that this view is the correct view. Um, one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The very passage that they use, it actually contradicts their, their viewpoint. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The point of the apostle, as we've been speaking of, is to give comfort to the church, to the afflicted church. Comfort one another with these words. And we do have hope. We're not like those who have no hope. We have hope because we are looking forward to the return of Christ. So what is the sequence of events according to this passage? The sequence is that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, or verse 16, the dead in Christ, 14 and 16, the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, when Jesus returns, they return with Jesus to meet those who are currently alive and believe in Jesus, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We who are alive will be caught up. And this is the term from which we get the word rapture. From the Latin word for caught up, we get the term rapture. So they believe that those who are in Jesus and those who are alive and believe in Jesus, we meet the Lord in the air and will always be with the Lord. What they say is that since it says we meet the Lord in the air, we're going to go back to heaven, which the passage does not say. And, that, and they also say that, that Jesus does not touch the earth. His feet don't rest on the earth, which the passage doesn't say one way or the other. Therefore, they say, take from this passage, this is not the second coming of Christ. It's the rapture of the church. However, just as I said, verse 17 doesn't say whether he goes to heaven or comes to the earth. It doesn't say any of that. So that's a non-issue right here. But notice what it says in verse 15. Verse 15 does call it the coming of the Lord. There's the first coming and there's the second coming. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the second coming of the Lord. We already know he came the first time. Now they're looking forward to the second time. So this very passage is not separating the word rapture from second coming. It's saying that the events of this caught up, being caught up, or rapture, if you will, from the Latin, is the same thing as the second coming. The two are the same event. That's my short answer rebuttal to their view on that. And then one more passage is Revelation 14. Revelation 14 by chapter 4, by Revelation chapter 4, proponents of this view say the church is not in the book of Revelation in these middle chapters. So in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 6, Revelation 14, verse 6, when it says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. The dispensationalists say, based on this passage, that since the church isn't there in the middle chapters of Revelation, the church has been raptured, that this eternal gospel for the whole earth is for the rest of the people on the earth, not for the church. Because they're gone. And this eternal gospel is not the same gospel that we believe in the church age, that is, in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. 
what they need to believe, the nations of the earth, what all they need to believe is simply verse 7, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth. So worship the Creator, worship the Judge, fear God and give Him glory. That's all they need to know and believe and they will be saved. So they... Uh, sometimes they will refer to this as the eternal gospel or isn't this a different gospel? They, they will say this is a different gospel, not the same gospel that we believe today. Well, my rebuttal to that is if it's the eternal gospel, then why is it only believed for seven years? Why is it called the eternal gospel when it's only believable for seven years? And then whenever we do hear the word or see the word gospel throughout the Bible, such as Hebrews 4, verse 2, they had the gospel preached to them just as we do. They meaning the, the people in Moses' generation. They had the gospel preached to them just as we do. Or Paul in Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and Galatians 3, 6 to 14, he says in chapter 1 that there's only one gospel, and if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. And then in chapter 3, he goes all the way back to Abraham and says Abraham believed the same gospel that we believe. Galatians 3, 6 to 14. Abraham believed the same gospel we believe. So why would there be any different gospel in the future, at any period in the future? How could anybody be saved apart from knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection? As Jesus said again in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the only way of salvation. And even our gospel requires us to fear God. Even our gospel now requires us to fear God. Second Corinthians 7, 1, um, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our gospel has a fear component, which means we know God who is a judge and who will punish us according to our deeds. Even, and even now we're supposed to give Him glory. We're supposed to give Him glory because 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. We're supposed to give Him glory. And we're also supposed to look forward to the day of judgment because God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead, Acts 17.31. And we're supposed to worship Him, that's quite obvious, and also acknowledge that He is the Creator. 1 Corinthians 15.21-22 For by a man came death, so also by, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What do those words imply? We need to know about Adam. We need to know that God created Adam and that Adam fell into sin, plunging all of us, his, all of his offspring, his posterity, into ruin, sin, death, misery, and evil under the wrath of God unless we're redeemed in Christ. That's what those words in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 imply. We have to have knowledge of God as our creator when the gospel is rightly, correctly preached. So, this passage does not help the dispensationalists. All right, well, that sums up our introduction to this study.